Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on an unprecedented unprecedented day here in the capital, uh, but we will push on. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Lynn Pitt, Director at TT, uh, sorry, DT. NG, a company who focus on ensuring that chocolate manufacturing process is as smooth as possible. Lynn, hello. Hello, Matthew. Lynn, thank you for coming on the program today. I know that everyone is a bit out of sorts at the moment with the the current COVID-19 spread, Uh, but thank you for uh, pushing through and coming on the program with us today. Oh, fine. Thank you for having me. Now, as uh, as you will know, and as longtime listeners of the program will expect, what does the word leader mean to you? The word leader to me actually means, uh, from my perspective, a facilitator, somebody who has a vision and passion for something, but none of us can ever deliver anything by ourselves. I believe we always need the support of people around us. We always need to identify the people who have the the intelligence, the experience, and also the desire to move along that path with you at the same time. So I think a good leader is, is a good listener. They have um, generally, I think, good people skills. They can um, They know they don't have all the answers themselves. And they allow the people around them to develop a way forward that is deliverable. And how would you describe? And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Um, My personal leadership style, just so that everybody understands, is I run a a global engineering company that is uh, like, especially in the confectionery industry. And I'm not an engineer, and I'm not a confectioner. So I have had to, uh, I've been extremely lucky that the people that I work with have been incredibly patient and that they have taken the time to explain the industry to me and how how my machines can be improved. And I actually think it was an advantage that I didn't have any knowledge because I didn't have any preconceived ideas and because mm. kind of the, the generosity of time, that that is how I have I have uh, progressed our company by listening to what clients want, listening to their, they're the experts, but they still knew how they wanted to develop their equipment and their production. So then I could go back to the people, my team here are very experienced and say, we need to do this. And that is, then we've supported each other. We've worked out ways that we can deliver what's being required. So that's how we have advanced. But we've done it as a team. We haven't done it as individuals. So it's important to foster that team mentality within your workplace. It is. I actually think one of the most remarkable things a leader can do is step aside and whether it's an organization, a business, whatever it is, that when you, excuse me, when you've developed um, an ethos for that business and a way of communicating and delivering that when you step aside, that will carry on. And that's how I think we have a share of knowledge here. And I like to think that eventually that is what will happen. 
Well, it's absolutely fantastic to hear that that sort of uh, lead from within approach. Now, of course, uh, as you alluded to there, you work in a very specialized marketplace. In fact, you have um, a very specialized product, the Finn uh, chocolate coating technology. Can you go into that a bit? Because I th- I'm sure that everyone's quite interested to hear about this. Well, our, um, DT&G was originally an engineering company and our founder was um, a good man called Frank Finn. And somebody approached him and asked him to design a machine that he could chocolate coat peanuts and raisins on. So he developed mm. the belt coater, which is, is still called the Finn now. So we actually make a machine that puts the chocolate on peanuts and raisins and also we have another machine which polishes them, which gives them a longer shelf life and um, gives them a better appearance. So our biggest machine can do 500 kilo of chocolate-coated peanuts every 45 minutes. Wow. Most of them, yeah, it, it's a, you have to want a lot of chocolate-coated peanuts and raisins. But at one time, when people's capacity increased, they would order more machines. But now nearly all the machines we sell work on a 24 hours a day basis. Mm. So um, it's very important to us. Well, we've maintained the level of engineering. Our small part, our spare parts division is, um, is, is kind of wouldn't keep us going forever. We still supply some belts for machines we did at Christmas time. They're out in Malaysia and America. And we originally shipped those machines 32 years ago. So when anybody buys a fin coater, they buy a machine that they're going to get a fantastic return on their investment from. And that was part of our challenge to ensure that we updated the machine so we made the systems more automated, but that we, we maintain that level of engineering and durability. It's important to uh, to hear these stories because, of course, there we live in such a disposable world at the moment, and to hear that you make a product that just lasts for uh, generations is fantastic. Uh, yeah. Let's let's take a step back into the past, uh, the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular influences on you, whether they be a particular individual or set of circumstances that really form the way that you lead today? Um. Well, initially, when I first left school, I worked. I worked in banking, and then um, I was a stay-at-home mum and brought up my two sons. And then I came back into the engineering world. The reason why I'm the MD of a of an engineering company is because it was kind of an, an opportunity, shall we say, that I was was given to. Um, run DT&G Engineering and in in all honesty I thought about this earlier it was more that I was pushed than I was led I remember saying to my accountant what am I going to do how am I going to run this and he said you'll have to learn fast which you know as I said earlier I, I learned because people were prepared to teach me um, my solicitor said to me, there's a legal phrase that you're going to have to learn and use often. And his was rather more colourful, but I will just say it was no thank you. So <laughs> there, have been, <laughs> there have been people who supported me and kind of pushed me. And, and again, I don't know if it's all the chocolate, but it is a, a great industry that 
that I work in, you know, it's uh, we work from the, the big blue chip companies to the more niche companies. And we also have an interest in helping um, the cocoa bean growers develop more more uh, value for, for money with their products. So that is, we've, we've just finished develop, developing a micro machine that is for very small production, but to help the people who who actually supply the centers, the peanuts, the raisins, and all, all those fruits that our supermarkets don't have because they're not the right shape and size. Those are the markets that we want to work with as well. Mm. Now, of yeah. course... It's very interesting uh, that these markets, it, it seems like it's ubiquitous. Uh, it's, it's the same sort of business around the world. But what makes uh, your firm so very good at it? Well, I think it is the fact that we are, we are, this, um, we are who we are. I've been told that um, people prefer us to our competitors because it's either myself or the engineering manager here, Wayne Woods, who answers the phone. I kind of have a, a policy that um, we, we are global. So we, you know, the working day ends about midnight and starts about two o'clock in the morning because mm-hmm. that's when people will phone us. If, if we don't respond immediately, you can very easily, what you should have done in a day can take three or four days if you wait for everybody to wake up and carry on. When the equipment leaves our factory and the railway shutter comes down, that's just the part of our journey because, and, and I think it possibly is because of who I was and I had no no real experience. I couldn't let the Finn brand name get into any disrepute or lose any of the respect that it had. So we always make sure that the client the product that it wants mm. off our machines at the end of the day. So at, at the moment, you know, you um, mentioned the situation we're in with the um, COVID-19, but we have, we're due to go out and install machines in America, Italy, Japan, Philippines and Australia, and, and we're grounded. So, I'm, you know, that, that's a, a bit of a dilemma for us, but we are hoping that have you put any oh. policies in place to deal with those situations? Well, we we are we have been asked by we are trying to develop um, an, an online way of the engineers sitting down and by a video link mm-hmm. assisting mm-hmm. in the setup of the equipment. But it's so much easier when we when we are there, you know, when you're face to face. There's lots of things involved in a successful batch from our machine being delivered, which includes air conditioning, humidity, the actual recipes that are put in the machine. Everybody's chocolate is a little bit different. Everybody's senses can some can be, you know, slightly stickier than others. So it's very difficult to spot that. Um, we do have good relationships with all of our clients and we are going to do everything we possibly can. But I'm desperately hoping that, it, you know, it's in three or four months' time, the airports are open again. 
Absolutely. And I think we all share in that, uh, that hope. Um, Lynn, uh, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close, but it has been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope that you can come back on the uh, program uh, under better circumstances. Uh, Lynn, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Matthew. Good that luck. Was- Bye now. Bye-bye. That was Lynn Pitt, Managing Director at DTNG. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the 
recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier and played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And, um, uh, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, South so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of 
a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark. Mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had the, the impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just a lack of form, I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of, very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, 
And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's... Uh, <laughs> I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've want, you got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, 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 a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, a laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to, to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence how you react and behave to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a 
and a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other in the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so but um, I'm conscious of the um, time um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions. 
and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is showed, the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. If you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.